Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Hear your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I am your host, Fred, and that great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. Um, and today we have our last week for now of uh, New Voices in Audio Theater. Um, this is one of my favorite little themes we do from time to time whenever I get um, another uh, batch of uh, new producers that I really just um, love to see some of you listeners enjoy, um, encourage them, get them out producing more work, um, and hopefully get you know get give them a bit of an audience. Um, you know, it's one of the hardest things. You know, not only are you going to be making a show, um, but then getting an audience for it. Um, in the early days, everybody started from somewhere. Um, so yeah, we feature stuff from the Flying Bike, which um, is a personal favorite for my of mine of the most offbeat production I think I've heard this year. Uh, the making of a terrible movie. Um, uh, the, 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 the dramedy that goes around that. Um, then we had uh, that the Everybody Loves Bill Evans, the uh, biopic of the j- legendary jazz pianist. And then last week uh, where we had the mobster tale, This Thing of Ours. All kinds of good stuff, um, new stuff coming out. I hope you enjoyed all that. And we've got one more today. We have The Primordials. Uh, the Primordials, uh, now I'll preface this by saying that this production made its way to my heart because I uh, lived in New Orleans for two years and I'm a love, uh, lover of mythology and you would have known that if you've ever heard my first story in audio drama, um, Day of the Dead uh, was a retelling of the myth of Orpheus. Um, so this production, The Primordials, uh, kind of bills itself as a uh, kind of an urban black Highlander, um, which is a, a pretty apt tale uh, take as as uh, well as I'd say you know inspired by the 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 realm of like Neil Gaiman's American Gods. It's about um, contemporary gods of ancient Africa living in America, living in Los Angeles and New Orleans, um, and their mayhaps, miscreants, and other uh, trouble making properties. <laughs> so uh, we're gonna get into that. It's a, a yeah, fairly bloody, violent start to the show, and then it goes into some ancient um, history, and then back to the contemporary action. Um, you can get through the first full chapter of this, most of that today, and there's another chapter available on iTunes now. Um, search for The Primordials. Uh, first up, though, we do have Captain Radio again. This uh, got his weekly review of Warped Space. Captain Radio tells all about it. Greetings, Audionauts. Captain Radio here with a review of Kimberly Poole's space opera series, Warp Space, from Hole with Rock Around It Productions, made possible by Rode Microphones. Passionate, unique audio transforms our world. You start with Rode. Visit RodeMic.com. That's R-O-D-E-M-I-C dot com. Attention, passengers and crew. The Space Services would like to welcome you aboard the colony ship, The Drake. Far in the future, good fences make good neighbors no longer suffices. Following a savage central galactic internecine conflict, claustrophobic human cultural factions scatter outward to colonize untamed remote regions of the Milky Way. Star Services, a tacitly more civil facade for the former military, maintains control of the vital interstellar jump drive. This tech powers transports like the Drake, a huge colonizing ship conducting milk runs between older worlds and the strange new frontier. Unfortunately, the lengthy stretch between the Drake's interstellar ports of call can turn idle moments into occasions when subtle prejudice reemerges. Okay, this is kind of exciting at first. Being on a ship and all the fun of the launch parties, but it's been seven weeks now and I'm getting bored. We still have 11 or so months till the first colony drop-off. At least there we'll be picking up some fresh passengers to talk to. 
Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That group going to tourists is kind of standoff. Ambassadors from some kind of religious group. They keep to themselves. Never seen any other women. Speaking of weird. After jumping into warp space, the Drake's truly banal routine ensues, including MASH-style announcements, which heighten the humdrum, though occasionally couching a bit of wit. Attention, please, passengers. Classes in greenhouse hydroponics are starting in 15 minutes on Arm 3 in Auditorium 199. Space Services would like to remind you that if you grow it, you get to eat it. Of course, once the shipboard tedium seems well settled in... Suddenly, tenured and admired Captain Eldridge Buchanan, voiced by Glenn Hallstrom, dies in an amateurish but clearly deliberate act of sabotage. Though miraculously spared herself, irresolute acting Captain Serena Myers, voiced by producer Poole, faces crippling damage, the inability to exit warp space, and a deadly unknown saboteur who might strike again, anytime, anywhere. Deeply conflicted, Captain Myers turns inward to her recently deceased mentor. If only it had been me instead of you. Honor and duty, and duty before all. Do your duty honorably, and you will make me proud. Thank you, sir. As a local protege of audio drama's ubiquitous and generous Dame Julie Hoverson, Kim Poole no doubt has matured as a writer and producer since October 2009 in the premiere of Warp Space. While not all the edges are smooth here, and the mostly remote recorded acting occasionally slumps, Poole's vast arcing premise, populated by an equally extensive and intriguing ensemble cast featuring regular cameos from other producers, sustains a fast and engaging pace. Listen to Kimberly Poole's Warp Space series from Hole with a Rock Around It Productions at warped-space.com, where new episodes will be added to the current eight count approximately every other month. Until next time, Audionauts, this is Captain Radio, signing off. And that was Captain Radio, CaptainRadio.com, and of course you can hit... Um, send in your show for review or feature um, on this show. Hit up the submit link at radiodramarevival.com. We recently revamped our um, submission process to make it a little bit more straightforward for the two of us. Hope that works out for you as well. Um, okay, uh, we're on to the primordials, the uh, dark urban fantasy of immortals living in New Orleans and their troubles. <laughs> Enjoy. The Primordials, an urban fantasy created by Reginald Nelson and Neil Lewis. Book One. Who are the Primordials? Chapter One. City of Angels. It is a breezy California night as Angelinos gather at the annual Playboy Jazz Festival inside the Hollywood Bowl. The music is cool and the people are hot as patrons listen to a trumpeter swing his way to heaven. The immaculate Shannon Bechet and partner Otis Armstrong are backstage doing what they do. This the last act? Any sign? No. Damn. Can't lose this one. This was your idea to use the man as bait, not mine. I know, I know. What about your war hounds? Here in place, don't worry. It ends tonight. The two men shake hands before Shannon exits to an elevator, leaving Otis alone backstage with security. In the audience, 
Otis views a few security guards walking with dogs to make sure the concert remains peaceful. Suddenly, he witnesses commotion in the middle section of the crowd. What the hell? After quickly running to the other side of the stage, Otis notices a large hawk swooping up and down into the crowd, causing confusion. It's on. Meanwhile, back in one of the VIP sections, Shannon is a guest of Hollywood royalty, the enormously successful movie producer, Jerry Silver. Jesus Christ. After all of these years, you'd think Hef would finally have figured out how to keep out the low lives. Look at that nonsense. Shannon looks up to see what all the noise is about when his eyes are almost gouged out by the hawk. Whoa! Was that a bird? A hawk. What's going on? This place is turning into a zoo. Otis bursts onto the scene and quickly begins ushering everyone out. All right, everyone, please follow me to the exit. I'll explain once we reach outside. Come on, man. That's it, I'm done. I'm having Jacob bring the cop around to get me out of here. Hey, that was quick. I didn't even call him. Get down! As Shannon leaps toward Silver, a bullet pierces into the producer's chest, killing him instantly. People escape the VIP section, trampling over Otis and leaving Shannon holding the bloody corpse. Just as the helicopter pulls away, Shannon climbs to his feet and makes a miraculous leap to the bottom of the copter. As Shannon desperately attempts to reaffirm his grip, a man dressed in army fatigues emerges from the door of the helicopter and kicks him in the face, sending Shannon plunging 50 feet below onto the empty seats. Later on that night down in Long Beach, at the nation's top manufacturer of commercial and military jets, Yolanda Jackson, a beautiful young woman, is about to experience the beginning of the worst week of her life. I, I really don't understand. I'm sorry, Yolanda, but this is coming from the board. Every department is experiencing... Joe, this is surreal. I'm the best engineer you've got. I've been the face of the company for the past five years, but no one can touch my designs. I know, I... The military just ordered 50 of my new F-550 Blackburns. Yolanda, please, don't make this more difficult than it already is. The company is still losing money by the boat Fine, loads. Joe, fine. I'm not going to beg for my job. This company can kiss my black ass. It's 2 a.m. in East Los Angeles, and the Lopez brothers, Pedro and Mario, sit comfortably in their new SUV outside a closing nightclub, enjoying the view. Look at that. Damn, I love it, <laughs> Me too. Hey, Chiquita, can I take you home with me? The attractive young lady completely ignores Mario and continues to walk down the block. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> that bitch. Mario leaps out of the vehicle and begins stalking the woman. She sees him out the corner of her eye and quickly picks up the pace. Hey, I know you heard me. Why you gotta embarrass me in front of my brother? It's off, asshole. She has now safely reached her car and is about to close the door when suddenly the door is frozen still, unable to shut. Mario smoothly and menacingly slides over to her car. As he stares at her, slowly the back of her blouse mysteriously becomes unbuttoned as one of her bra straps is removed. What? What are you doing? <gasps> 
Her car seat suddenly leans back as Mario simply stands next to the automobile and literally undress her with his eyes. Coño, what are you doing? What does it look like? I'm about to teach you some manners. Pedro quickly spins his young brother around and backhands him across the face. No, cabrón, we're here for business. Mario reluctantly dresses the young woman as Pedro then gently shuts the car door. Pedro looks her dead in the eye. You're going to go home and forget about what just happened. All you remember is that you had a good time at the club as some fools try to get your number. Okay? Yes. Yes. Sweet. Adios. Moments later, the Lopez brothers are now in the empty nightclub surrounded by gunmen. The gangsters are the personal bodyguards of the owner, Dominican kingpin Mendoza. You bitches got a lot of nerve coming here. Caballo, you left us to die in that cargo ship. It took a long time to find out who was smuggling people from the R, but here we are. People spent their life savings paying you for transport, and you left them high and dry during the hurricane? Hurricane? Wait a minute. Are you talking about Katrina? Man, I don't care about what happened to some sorry-ass illegals four years ago. Oh, you better. I what? Mendoza and his crew are stunned to see their bullets frozen in midair. Let me tell you something about my little brother Mario. Ever since he was a kid, he hated guns. Mario quickly turns his hand as the suspended bullets swiftly spin around and move toward the gunman, killing them instantly. All that is left is a single bullet slowly hovering away from the previous pack, like a lone wolf. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I... I can get you anything you want. Money, bitches, whatever you want. Whatever your heart desires. How about retribution? Can you get us retribution, asshole? Pedro looks at Mario, who then slowly and deliberately makes the single bullet burrow in between Mendoza's eyes, forcing it into his skull. No, 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 no! It's morning in downtown Los Angeles at the main headquarters of the LAPD. Two federal agents, Rick Stevens and Jackie Hernandez, are questioning an older detective. Let's try this again, detective. You have a third major Hollywood producer killed in as many weeks, and you don't think there's a connection? Of course there's a connection. I just don't know what it is. Why would someone have it in for movie producers? Seen any of their movies lately? You know, this is an LAPD problem. Why are two agents for Homeland Security interested in a couple of dead producers? Thank you, Detective. We'll be calling you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You still haven't answered it. Agent Stevens and Hernandez are formally introduced to Los Angeles traffic. Well, that was a complete waste. Not at all. We got exactly what we needed from LAPD. Which is? Confirmation the boys are indeed in town. Houston, Atlanta, Chicago. So you think it's finally time to pay Mr. Bechet and Mr. Armstrong a visit? Oh, absolutely. Going west down Sunset Boulevard is the world-famous Chateau Mamont, a cozy French villa tucked comfortably inside an expansive American metropolis where the famous and wealthy pilgrims reside whenever they frequent Los Angeles. It's also the temporary home of music producers Shannon Bechet and Otis Armstrong. His name is Marcus DeLone. Served two tours, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. No living relative. Conservative? Absolutely. 
All the producers killed made huge money on movies that were full of sex and violence. So our man has declared war on the film industry, defending his old-fashioned Southern values against mainstream pop culture similar to the terrorists he was recruited to fight. Ironic, isn't it? Except alone isn't a terrorist. He's a good old boy from Louisiana, a patriot. A patriot with the powers of an African guard. Suddenly, appearing out of thin air is a tall, lean, Yoruba trickster. The god known throughout the ages as Elegba. Greetings from Ife, gentlemen. What do you want, Elegba? I only wish to see how your labors are coming along. They coming. I see. So after four mortal years, your hunt has brought you to the American West Coast. The gods of Ife couldn't be prouder. To the point. As you wish, Hunter. Once you retrieve the last of the Aborishas who acquired their powers during the hurricane, I think the two of you should know that your lost love has been dwelling here in California as well. Oh, yeah? That is correct, Sandara. She is living as a mortal here, and since she was the cause of your banishment, it is only fitting that your final hunt brings you closer to her. And why are you telling us this? Amusement hunter. I want you to witness the destruction of your newfound friendship as the two of you start to once again desire her. We're literally too old for your games, Alegba. If Oya were here in California, we know it. Not if she herself didn't remember who she was, Tandera. So now the choice is yours. Who will continue the hunt for the Abarishas? Or who will seek out the lost goddess? This shall prove most interesting because despite centuries of separation, lust is a difficult thing to ignore, even for the gods. Back in the Crescent City, at its most advanced trauma center for burn victims, Kim Lee recovers from a lab accident that left her within inches of her life. She is alone and covered from head to toe in bandages when she is visited by a tall, dark stranger. Hello, Kim. Dr. Cole? No, love. My name is Dr. Christopher Soyanka. I'm an anthropologist. Anthro, what are you doing here? To help you, child. Tell me about what happened in the lab. No. Please, Kim, I realize it's painful. No! 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 Suddenly, flames appear out of nowhere around the hospital bed as the staff scrambles around the floor for help. Shh! It's okay. It's all right. Dr. Soinka miraculously walks through the flames unarmed and gently touches her charred face. Easy, child. Easy. Focus. Focus, Kim. That's it. Focus. Flames slowly extinguish as Dr. Soinko cradles the sobbing young woman in his arms. It's all right, girl. Let it out. Go ahead. How? It's not your fault. How did you know? That's what I've come to speak with you about, Kim. Now I can help you not only heal your wounds, but control your transformations. What are you? Something extraordinary happened to you, Kim, before the lab accident. It happened during Katrina. Katrina? When the levees broke, your recent accident simply fertilized what was already planted in your DNA four years ago. What the hell are you talking about? Do you believe in God, Kim? Yes. Good. Because that belief is what's going to sustain you. You see, Kim, 
the cause of your accident, the devastation of New Orleans, and this entire Gulf region is all the work of two immortal Africans. Their names are Shannon Bachette and Otis Armstrong. The pagans call them Shango and Ogun. And I need your help, child. I need you to help me kill them. Book One, Who Are the Primordials? Chapter Two, Origins. Africa, the dark continent, a land cloaked in hope, despair, beauty, savagery, and mythology. Our tale began centuries ago in the Holy Kingdom of Ife, ruled by Obatala and home to the celestial Yoruba gods. It pains me to no avail to banish Ife's two greatest warriors and champions. I fear our kingdom can no longer contain such a fierce rivalry. Permission to speak, Majesty. Granted, Hunter. I don't believe it is just to exile myself along with the Thunderer who openly commits adultery and sleeps with another god's wife. If I may, Majesty. Proceed, Shango. No one is more ashamed or embarrassed than I. I regret falling in love with Ogun's beloved, Your Highness, but that is exactly what happened between Oya and myself. You have dishonored me, Thunderer, and I will not rest until your head is severed from your body. Hunter, save your threats for someone who fears you. For if you get any closer, you will feel the full power of the Thunder God. Enough, you two. The matter that most concerns me is both of your arrogance, which is sickening to behold. Obatala rolls out a long white cloth on the floor and points towards it, directing the two war gods' attention. While Ife's two champions combat each other, mortal man is falling apart. A phenomenon is sweeping across man's world, finally bringing all the tribes into conflict. Elegba's prophecy is about to come to pass. Olokun, the water god, will again rise to reclaim the earth. Your Highness, with all due respect, Elegba is a liar and cannot be trusted. I am afraid I must agree with Ogun. Your Majesty, Elegba is not... A respected member of this council and is not the one on trial here, Thunderer. Behold. And here. manner of mortelic beast is that? What wizardry? This is precisely why I need the two of you to journey to man's world and show him another way. One cultivated in our traditions, man too has grown arrogant with his technology and written tongues. It is my duty to serve you, my king but I simply ask not to serve alongside the adulterer. It is too much to ask of a god. I don't doubt that this mission calls for both of us, my liege. Might I suggest we're both placed on different ends of the earth? No, our brother gods to the north and east have already staked their territories. A Yoruba presence would only cause conflict. No, your mission shall take place in the New World. Slowly, Elegba enters the chamber, followed by attendants pulling a large kettle. 
Greetings, holy gods of Ife. Welcome, Elegba. I see you have brought the Ashe cauldron with you. Yes, my lord. We can begin whenever you like. And so, Shango and Ogun, as your king and ruler of this realm, I hereby banish you from Ife. An attendant walks forward, places his hand in the Ashe cauldron, then spreads the holy water across Shango's forehead. Shango, our god of thunder and lord of living lightning, master strategist and tactician, and yet unable to control his lust. No longer will you be able to command the wind and the rain, to fly through the sky with the ease of the eagle, or possess Oshe, your mighty battle axe. The Thunder God slowly hovers in the air as his life force is pulled out of his body and placed into the cauldron by Elegwa. Shango suddenly falls to the floor, gasping for breath. Ogun, god of the hunt, whose energy is constantly in motion, commander of all canines and vegetation, a warrior who relishes the art of war. However, it is your rage that is your greatest weakness. The attendant places the Ashe holy water from the cauldron onto Ogun's forehead as he slowly rises from the ground in midair. You too, Hunter, will no longer rule the green foliage of the earth. The canine will now become man's best friend instead of a god's. Exactly like Shango before him, Ogun's life force is snatched from his body and placed into the cauldron, sending him crashing into the ground. So, my loyal subjects, the ceremony is complete, and your true test shall begin immediately. Now that you have been stripped of your Ashe, you can enter into man's world. Majesty, surely you cannot expect mankind to worship a powerless god? Ah, Shango, you don't comprehend. Man will no longer serve you or Ogun. Rather, you too shall serve him. Speak forward, Elegba, not around in circle. As you wish, Hunter. The vengeful god and third member of this council, Babalu, thought, and Obotala and I agreed, that the only way for the two of you to learn humility is by serving mankind as bondsmen. Bondsmen? You mean slaves! Only for a few centuries, brothers. It will be the best way to learn man's values and beliefs particularly in the new world. So it was at this moment that a 400-year odyssey began. Shango and Ogun journeyed down the world tree where the holy kingdom of Ife resided, around the golden chain and landed square into the heart of darkness, only to be swiftly captured and transported west. The god slaves first arrived by the powerful trade winds in a vast jungle the Portuguese crowned as Brazil. Once while working in the cane field, Ogun was spotted by an overseer practicing his martial art. When the overseer approached him, the hunter quickly converted a roundhouse kick to an acrobatic dance move. 
What's that you're doing, boy? Just dancing, boss. I call it a... a caparera. Dancing, huh? Get back to work. A century later, the god slaves found themselves in Spanish hell, an island prison called Cuba. It was here that Shango was caught drinking the rum he was supposed to be bottling, a gesture his master didn't take kindly to. Yet despite countless lashes and unmeasurable amounts of blood, Shango didn't make one sound or flinch. Not once. Years later, the war gods finally got to draw blood and successfully led an uprising against the French on the island of Saint-Dominique, later chronicled as the Haitian Revolution. No, no, monsieur, monsieur, merci, merci, monsieur. Tell your master, Napoleon, that if he wants this island, he must come and secure it himself. The two gods left their marks across the Caribbean and South America. However, it wasn't until they arrived in another French kingdom that they began to experience a slow metamorphosis. It was here, in the port city of La Nouvelle Orléans, that Shango and Ogun began to feel truly at home. They would congregate with other Africans every Sunday in a place known as Congo Square. During the War of the States, Shango and Ogun found themselves once again on the battlefield, fighting to liberate New Orleans from the Confederacy. Years after the war, Shango and Ogun worked as musicians touring the country in big bands. Together, along with other musicians from New Orleans, they ushered in an entirely new musical art form. Then, one day back in the Holy Kingdom, the gods held council to decide Shango and Ogun's fate. It has been some time, but the two of them have done well. They have spread our culture throughout the new world as planned, and even done so without the powers of their ashe. It is quite a feat, Majesty. I am very impressed. Also, they seem to have put aside their differences. 400 years of slavery has a way of humbling even the proudest of gods, Elegba. <laughs> that is the truth, my liege. Yet am I the only god to notice that Shango and Ogun are beginning to appreciate their status as mortals a little too eagerly? Nonsense. My lord, they have become obsessed with their mortal music and identities. Obatala considers Elegba's words only to turn to the Black Cauldron, where the Ashe power or life force dwells. He then begins to speak into it, summoning the third god of the council, the vengeful Babalu. And what do you make of Elegba's accusations, Babalu? I agree with Elegba. While man's world continues to advance its sciences, their society is still coming loose at the seams. Shango and Ogun must be reminded of who they are and their origins. What do you recommend? Return their power. Hmm. The mortals are on a course bound for disaster, and they need true gods to inspire them once again. How do we restore them? Simple, my lord. 
From the heavens we shall hurl down Oshe, Shango's battle axe along with Ogun's energy spear. Once they retrieve them, the items will restore their powers. Hmm. Very well, Elegba. Send the battle axe and war spear to their proper owners. It was during the fifth year of the 21st century that a mighty hurricane swept the new world. The powerful winds retraced Shango and Ogun's footprints throughout the Caribbean and Mexican Gulf. However, unbeknownst to the other gods, the trickster Elegba made the winds far more powerful than the other gods intended, and so terror struck the mortals of that region. Also, for his own amusement, Elegba intentionally released some of the Ashe power from the cauldron, causing the life force to merge within the surrounding lakes of Shango and Ogun's home, New Orleans. Ah, Thunderer and Hunter. After witnessing your mortal exploits across time, other gods of Ife grew jealous and wanted in on the action. It pleases me to oblige them. Back in New Orleans at an abandoned dock, a group of illegal immigrants cling to their very lives as water rises inside a cargo ship. The only survivors are two brothers, Pedro and Mario Lopez. Hey, God! We're not going out like this! The Lopez brothers bang on the top hatch, trying to get it open. Interesting. Two are siblings. To them, I will grant the power of Ibezi twins. The Lopez brothers are struck by a bolt of lightning which breaks the hatch on the cargo ship. Meanwhile, somewhere in the bayou, Marcus Delone, a former soldier, kneels at the grave of his younger sister, a prostitute who had been murdered in the French Quarter. Maddie, I promise you, I'm going to find out who did this and make them pay. Them liberals and them degenerates have taken over this country. And tonight, I'm fighting back. Now he shall have the power of Ochosi to help him on his quest. At a top research university in the city, Kim Lee, a young chemistry student, sits on the roof of one of the campus buildings waiting to be rescued when the unthinkable happens. Aganju is my gift to you, my dear. Our Lady of St. James Cathedral also acts as an orphanage. Sister Monica Walker silently weeps as she holds a drowned child. So serious, these mortals. This one will learn to experience great pleasures of the flesh as Oshun. <gasps> Dr. Christopher Soinka is being hauled into the air by the heroic National Guard when suddenly the harness snaps and he plunges into the lower depths of the Mexican Gulf. Olokun, the water god, has called you home. Now, where are the Thunderer and the Hunter? Meanwhile, in the lower depths of the Ninth Ward, Shannon and Otis each have their own small fishing boat full of people. The two powerful men paddle their way through the flooded housing projects searching for higher ground when the sky suddenly splits open. You see that? I feel it. 
Shannon and Otis' eyes begin to glow as strange objects hurl towards them at unbelievable mock speed. We have to get these people to higher ground. What's happening? Mama, I don't want to die. No one's going to die. Otis and Shannon are both struck by the objects and carried across the city through cars, homes, and storefronts before smashing smack into a giant concrete wall. Water pours into the city like a broken fire hydrant, consuming everything in its wake. Shannon and Otis are completely submerged until they both reappear, holding their ancient weapons. O'Shea, you have returned to me, but at what cost? The lake, it's drowning the city. Back in the Holy Kingdom, Elegba takes great delight in his mischief when he is confronted by Babalu, speaking from the cauldron. You fool. Look what your actions have wrought. The Ashe has spilled into the lake next to the city and affected the mortals surrounding it. You have given them the power of the gods. It's only temporary, Babalu. No mortal frame can maintain the Ashe for too long. But the life force is now drained, trickster. The gods of Kufe are now weakened. Your games have compromised our very existence. I, I, I didn't realize. Back in New Orleans, a city is under siege by both its own residents and a massive, emancipated lake. Shango stands next to Ogun above a rooftop, welding his axe, attempting to command the hurricane to cease when Babalu appears in the sky. Do not, Do not waste, waste your time, time Thunderer. Your, your powers, powers have been weakened. Elegba has, has unleashed the Ashe onto these mortals, mortals and, it and it must be retrieved. How? You, you and Hunter, Hunter must find these Abarishas and take, take it away from them. I have no interest in cleaning up the trickster's messes, Babalu. That is exactly what you must do, Hunter. If you truly cherish your homeland, for Elegbeth's foolishness has undermined us, and it's only a matter of time before our enemies realize our current state. So once again, Ife needs her warriors. That is correct, Ogun. It is a role that you yourself relish, and one that the gods need you to execute with extreme prejudice. End of chapter two. Origins. Book One, Who Are the Primordials? All right, and that was The Primordials, Episode One. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, the Primordials, uh, they do have a website uh, with some great character art on it, um, The Primordials, though you can also find them on iTunes. Uh, it's at theprimordials.com or search iTunes for The Pri. The Pri- Mordials. I think iTunes is actually a better way to listen to the program, but theprimordials.com has the art. Um, and best of luck, Reginald Nelson, on that program. Really enjoyed it. The good news about us wrapping up this feature this week is that next week is Horror Time, October. Um, as our fourth year in a row, going to be doing a month-long feature of horrifying audio works, um, starting off with Carl Armari. Uh, you may recall from the Twilight Zone series, he's also the gentleman who arranged for us to get um, Bradbury 13 here on the show. He's doing a new um, series called Dread Time Stories, um, new contemporary 
uh, dark horror fic- fiction. Uh, it's being streamed online and uh, also being rebroadcast here for the month of October. Um, fantastic, creepy little tale. Um, all about those coming up next week. Um, some other friends returning. We'll have 19 Nocturne Boulevard, um, Scott Hickey with AM FM Theater, and then another special piece that um, you may not have heard of that I was introduced by my uh, colleague Rich Fish, uh, which I really enjoyed coming up at the tail end of the month. Capstoning it all will be the transcontinental terror effort. Uh, myself and Matthew Boudreau of 1918 are joining forces um, to do a original piece recorded on location. Um, it's going to be awesome. Um, joining us as well uh, will be a cadre from Wireless Theater Company, uh, Jack Ward's uh, Electric Vicuna, uh, down to Chatterbox Theater in Memphis, and off to ja- Jeff Adams in uh, Icebox Radio Theater, and then um, hitting the West Coast with Sam Mowry, a uh, compendium of audio listening coming up live for you on Halloween night. Can't wait to share that with you. Um, TranscontinentalTerror.com, live stream there, and uh, yeah, you can't hear it anywhere else. And in the meantime, of course, 150 hours plus of original audio drama programming at RadioDramaRevival.com. Learn about all the latest in audio drama news. Hit us up on Twitter, at RadioDrama, or search iTunes for Radio Drama Revival. Um, that is a wrap for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalgh. Copyright of individual shows remains their original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG-FM, Greater Portland, Maine's community radio. It is podcast at radiodramarevival.com, the labor of love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week. <laughs>